Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm his former bully, suddenly turned best friend, Duncan Nickel. It's really great, Duncan, that in the face of great adversity, we could put aside our differences and suddenly and very rapidly become good friends before I suddenly hurl it back against you because I'm an emotional basket case. It is so appreciated, you know, and it's, it's just how it just turned on the dime. Thought one way, everything was set up, but, you know, one conversation, you talk it all through, you realised, I just had my own issues, and then we came together. That's how human beings work. Duncan, this week we're talking about the book The Poppy War by R.F. Kuang. Those of you who listened into our previous episode will know that this is probably going to be a divisive episode. I know, Jordi. You laid it down at the end of our last one that you are not the biggest fan of this book, despite the very positive discourse around it. That is what I said last last time. Have my opinions changed upon a reread? Has How have Duncan's newly formulated opinions, how do they line up with my own and those of the general public consumption? We will get into that in a moment. But before we do so, Duncan, have you read anything else? Yes, I have. So those that follow us on Instagram, is this just fantasy podcast, will know that I've recently been on holiday. And when I go on holiday, I sit in a cabin and read books and drink coffee, you know, mm. the other two. So I read through... I actually only finished two stories. And Geordie, I'm on holiday. These are my comfort reads. These are my favourite, safe, I'm in my box reads. So, mm-hmm. obviously I read Conan, the Barbarian. <laughs> I read a short story by John C. Hocking called Conan and the Black Starlight, which is part of the newly launched Heroic Signatures Conan short story series i don't really know how long this is going to go on for but essentially oh yes this is is this the new like now that it's sort of um what do you call it in the public domain new books being released interesting enough sort of not actually so these are the guys who actually own the license so can the barbarians Mm. in the public domain in europe and well basically the whole world apart from america because american copyright laws Mm. well the mouse has the power so that keeps getting extended. This is the company that formerly owns the, the copyright to Conan. And what they're doing at the moment, instead of putting out new regular novels, they have put out one novel. But now what they're doing is we're going to get monthly short stories that go straight to Kindle. They're about £1.50 or probably $2, however the exchange rate works. And mm. yeah, it's just a bunch probably of different not $2 authors. anymore. <laughs> bunch of different authors putting out short stories. And this is the second one that's come out. It's not just Conan. They're also doing some Robert E. Howard's other characters that they own the license to. But I'm really excited for this one because the guy who wrote this book wrote one of the old Conan Pache novels. Pashish? I do forget which way I pronounce it. Pashish Pastiche. novels. Called Conan the Emerald Lotus. Never change, Duncan. Never change. And that's one of my all-time Conan Pashish novels. I think in terms of getting a good story and the voice of Robert E. Howard... I think very few people even touch where Hocking got to. And this story was a continuation of that. It was really nice. It directly follows on from his previous novel, though you don't have to read it to understand the plot. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, it was already released. This novel was actually released as in the back of the Marvel comic release of Conan. So if you own any of the issues... Oh, yeah. This is the story they that never was never the bothered to read those. Well, this is it. Now, collected all in one... And released as a single download on Kindle. I do think it's the best way to read it. I was very sad because I only got the first issue, Geordie, and then I went to trade paperbacks. That's kind of how I read comics. I think you're similar. Um, not, I haven't read a comic book in quite some time. Okay, fair enough. 
Uh, so it's nice to have it all together. I'm not a nerd like you, Duncan. I do normal things, like read manga. <laughs> Glad we're on the same page. Let's do a Conan manga. And so the other book I read was yet another Conan. I was sat there in the spa by like the pool reading Conan the Defiant by Steve Perry, mm. um, an author that I spoke very poorly of in the past in terms of his Conan work and his um, Forgotten Realms work and his Star Wars work. But I was reading this one, <laughs> and do you know what? For the first time, I just, something sort of, I don't know, fl- I want to say a switch flicked, but I just saw my, it's like, I don't know, what's the best metaphor? It's like the microscope, like I was just tweaking the setting back and forth, and it just suddenly came into focus, like what this author is about. And this author mm-hmm. is silly, and he's not intentional. I don't think he's trying to be as funny as he is, but he writes such tropey fantasy and things are so quick but the ideas are still very amusing and his descriptions this is the man who wrote the line i mentioned i can't remember what episode someone can go back and find out he wrote the line um even a blind man could see how awesomely male the demon was generally this guy channels that eye of argon like descriptions level not quite that extreme it was eye of argon that was the episode (laughs) perfect that is what this gets. And when you now I've like attuned to that level a bit more, I, it is a lot of fun to read. So, yeah, that's what else I read and comics as well. But I don't want to demean myself by ranting on about them. No, lame So I'll pass um, over to you, Jordy. What have you been reading? I haven't read anything. I, I After I finished A Poppy War, I kind of wanted to read something else, but I couldn't really find anything to sink my teeth into. Um, so instead... I, I've actually been distracting myself with other things. Um, I, I picked up the guitar since our last episode, and I've been learning to play that. That's a lot of fun. Um, difficult, more difficult. Yet, yet I'm doing like these little things that are like, hey, here's a little 10-minute lesson you can do, and it takes me a lot longer than 10 minutes. But it's really, it's a really satisfying skill because it's one where you can just sit there, make a mistake, and go, oh, I made a mistake. Oh, well, I'll try again. And you just do that. Last time, Duncan and I played Dungeons and Dragons together, um, I didn't really have to do anything. Like, my character was just not involved for, like, two hours of the game. And so I just put my microphone on mute, and I just practiced changes. I just practiced playing the same three chords for two hours straight, and now I can just do those changes. And it's, like, so like instant reward if you just put in the time to do it. I just want to ask, like, so I've never learned to play a musical instrument. I've never, like, attempted I played recorder... Um, when I was six years mm. old and I learned how to play free blind mice what would be your recommendation do you think like something like the guitar completely just buy a guitar look it up on YouTube go or is that would you rec- have you had any prior musical instrument musical training you're like nah maybe lessons are kind of worth it um well I don't think you need lessons to do what I'm doing that's for sure and I want to go as far as I can without requiring lessons because I don't have to spend money on something I could get for free. When I could just look up, learn the chords, look up songs, look up what songs are neat, what chords I need to play those songs, and then just practice playing those songs. I think that comes with having a lot more musical experience because I used to play the saxophone and I love to sing. I have a lot of singing training. But fundamentally, like... And what I've realized is if you're taking it slow, it's not a complicated device. You just put your fingers in the right position and you play and you make a mistake and you just start again. Um, and I, I really feel like I'm not really a natural when it comes to musicians. I'm really bad 
mental dexterity of where to put my fingers and what order to do things in. But, you know, with this, if you, I'm just putting in the time and I'm, I'm learning as I go. I think, Duncan, if you wanted to pick it up and you wanted the two of us to jam together, you could probably do that. Jordy, I cannot emphasise to you how musically illiterate I am. I once had a guy in my first year of uni sit down and he was like, he played the trombone. And we were sat there mm. and he was like, okay, Duncan, so let's just like start from the beginning. Let's just clap a beat. Anyway, after about 20 minutes, he's like, okay, Duncan, we can't do this. <laughs> I could not clap a steady beat. The other thing I've distracted myself with is, Duncan, this episode is being recorded and being released in November. And we both know what November is. Guy Fawkes Night? Yes, but also it's NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. Uh where anyone who participates tries to write 50,000 words uh, in a month, hitting daily targets. And this year, I'm, I'm doing it again. Oh, yes. Publisher's Dream. December, they must get all those lovely first draft novels in. Yeah, the, the lovely, not-yet-spell-checked first drafts come rushing in. They must love and hate it. I, I Last year, it was the first time I ever succeeded at NaNoWriMo, and this year I'm going to try again and really go for broke and an idea I've had for a long time but was never quite able to sink my teeth into. So, giving it another go, I, uh, I'm so far, so far, hitting targets. Yesterday was the first time I didn't write the requisite number of words in a day, because I was traveling all day and writing everything by hand on a train, which was very bumpy. So I'm going to give myself that excuse, and then, um, hopefully today, hit my quota again. Geordie, I am going to actually add a little something to this. For the first time, I tried doing a bit of creative writing. Not the first time, actually. But I sat down the other day. I finally, I finally got a um, a decent app on my phone for dictating because I can't stand actually typing. I was like, I'm going to do this. I have the energy. I have the idea. This is going to be amazing. Anyway, uh, seven paragraphs later, I went, nope, not for me. <laughs> can't, can't do this. Maybe if I try to like write the exciting bits, but I just keep going like, nah, change that got a different idea and then eventually i do just go ah oh, i'll just read someone who's good at it i just enjoy this as a art form you know i'll appreciate it i will accept the fact i won't take part it doesn't you like you know there's one thing we can always say is that you don't need to be a great writer to cr- to critique writing fortunately uh you know we know good music when we hear it even if we can't play the instrument ourselves it's not a prerequisite to uh to 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 review books and we all know that duncan has mastered a much higher art form that being podcasting and now let's move on to our review of the poppy war geordie this is a reread for you you previously didn't like it it is this is the new fresh eyes now i knew you didn't like it and i knew that the rest of the world does yes apart from my little sister actually she's kind of mellow on it too so I actually had quite hmm. a quite an influence on like, oh God, how I'm going to feel. Can I take you through my journey on this? Because I would love to hear it, man. This book was an emotional journey with my relationship. Mm. When I started reading this, for the first sixth, I genuinely was there like, this feels like a slightly less good Red Sister. I, okay. It's the sure. same. It's just... Young girl, she's gone to a special school. She's not super popular. She's struggling a bit. And I was mm. like, okay, but 
the characters, I don't think I'm getting as much depth from like the side characters that I should. Things are a little bit too predictable. I can't see where this is going. And then there is a, a line in like, I don't know what, what section it is, but this is one little line where the, the character was like, and these training lessons continued throughout year two and year three. And I was like, whoa, t- time jump. We're, we're doing big, massive time jumps. I did, I did not realise this. Mm-hmm. Okay, you've got my attention back. And then we get to the second act of this novel. And I, I'm going to have to go kind of, maybe not full spoiler here, but the school setting gets disrupted. And I went, oh, oh, hello. You're not what I thought you were. I thought you were a red sister. I thought you were a bit of Harry Potter. I thought you were a scholar man. So this is different. Okay, you've got me. I am in. And then what it proceeded to do is sort of have me, lose me, have me again, lose me again. There'd be a scene I really liked, like there's an attack and a swamp and a fight and all these people have all these superpowers. I'm like, cool. And then there'll be scenes of just people being assholes. I'm like, not so cool. And then <laughs> you'll have one tone, but then there'll be something really dark. I'm like, because oh, at the start of this book, the opening, I was... I didn't get maybe how dark it was going to push it. And then it proceeded to just tumble into, this is darker than I thought. This is darker than I think you've earned. This is darker, but I see where you're pulling from history. So maybe that's actually really good that you've like, you've brought me in light and now you're going, no, this is the real world. You need to look at this. And I did do a little bit of looking. I was like, oh my goodness. Now I, my day in the spa is ruined. (laughs) Not so, a bit more than that. But, (laughs) and I went back and forth. Geordie, I'm going to say that by the time I closed this book, I did like it. I did enjoy the journey and I do want to see where it goes. But I don't like it in the same way I like a lot of books. I don't like it because I necessarily like the characters. In fact, the main character annoyed me quite a lot at points. (laughs) Oh dear. And I was like, I can't quite tell how much of my annoyance or exasperation is authorial intent and i can't quite tell how much that matters to me whether or not it's meant to be Mm. annoying me because great you've succeeded but how am i meant to feel and this is a book that i think had some really strong ideas really strong ideas but i do think the execution could be smoothed out not even necessarily the story itself has to change or the plot has to change just the way it's tonally balanced and the time it gives to transition you from kind of one tone to another a lot of the time I felt there were jarring moments and it kind of shook me up but ultimately I did like the ideas it was serving up to me ultimately I do want to know where it goes and how much it pushes things so I did enjoy Poppy War and I would kind of recommend it to people but I don't think it's quite the masterclass that some maybe the other books we've reviewed certainly have been. And I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Next time we'll be listening to... I mean, yeah, what else can I say? Like, you you got it, buddy. I mean, is that how everyone Tonally else feels? Totally dissonant, absolutely radical swings in terms of, like, what the story is about. Like... I was good preparing in my head to take everyone on a journey to say, at first, this book is Red Sister, like, disaffected, 
nowhere to go in this world girl goes to special school to learn cool martial arts and join the military and then oh no bad shit goes down and now it's the suicide squad now it's the story of the suicide squad she's joined task force x and now it's about the rape of nanjing yeah yeah well i felt shocked in points where it was meant to shock but i just feel that the way we transition and i do think it's in the transitions that make this a difficult reading experience i do not think the author was wrong in any way for wanting to tackle things like the rape of nanjing i think that's a wonderful idea to approach that through the veil of your fantasy novel amazing the idea of this suicide squad and the special powers great i love it love it a special school for a special someone listen i have read that so many times sorry special school for a disenfranchised someone i've read that so many times but I can still enjoy that. I can still get behind it. It's the characters. It's the dynamics. I love the underdog. I love rooting for them. I like the fact that they're going to power through even though they're, you know, pressed down by society. It's those transition moments that just didn't quite work. And I wonder if it was a matter of if this the three acts of this book were the trilogy, would I feel different? Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. These are different books, right? Like, I mean, it's split into part one and part two, part two being the latter two thirds of a book. But there's like a really obvious place where book one ends, where she chooses law. She goes through this big journey. She makes this pivotal decision. It marks a transition point between the first part of her education and the second part. That's the end of book one, right? It's a modest, I don't know. 300 page book as opposed to a 900 page book i mean yeah exactly i would have read it like that and i would enjoy this but it is inexcusably long but would it have been as memorable a debut novel i think if that was just the first book i don't know if there would be the same discourse i don't know if i would have been as interested in reading it i think if my sister came up to me and described the plot of that first book i would have gone I read Red Sister just last year. I read this year. I don't know if I need another one of them. I don't think that's the reason why you should structure your book, is to make a big splash in your debut. I think you should write the book to be a neat and tidy package. Like, the book is made worse for the fact that there are these big, divisive swings in quality and tone. But it is made potentially more memorable. And I feel that I do appreciate some of the decisions made. Well, maybe not good from the reading experience. I do like to be shocked now and again. I do like a little shake-up from what I'm expecting. I read a lot of fantasy books, Geordie, and I love them to bits, as you know. But sometimes, if you're on the same track for too long, you get a little too comfy. Don't think I I can see what you're saying there, and the idea of the big exciting debut isn't a factor i've considered before and i still don't think it's a worthy one but i do see where you're coming from there i think that being said i think you could still write that first book you know based on the first part her first year of education at senegard and if you just sprinkled in the fantastical elements a little bit more then i think you would have essentially you know, a really good starting point. The fact that it is a 800-page 
monster, followed by two subsequent 800-page monsters, and I can't even imagine what is in those books, because the first third of this isn't even about the war, which is, you know, the latter two-thirds, and the next book is about the continuation of that, that struggle, that war, and it's just as long as this book, and then there's another one after that. What on earth could she want to write about? Well, I kind of want to know. It's... Well, uh, well, we'll get to that at the end of the episode. <laughs> right. But here's the thing, and I think we've got to break down each section and go in more detail, but I do still feel that there is quite value in this setup and that kind of bait and switch. Do you know what, Jordi, you say you could just make that the whole first book, and if it was a shorter book, maybe. But do you know what? I have read that story. I know special person goes to special school giving me a this is what it's going to be about but then moving on i think it's great i just think that if you're going so to do just that, read ender's game like isn't that what ender's game's about special school gets interrupted by this horror this horrible twist oh no it was all real the stakes and the bloodshed was it was like more genuine than we realized spoilers for ender's game i've not read that yet but I still think that's a good idea. And if Ender's Game is the only example we pull on, I think that's fine. I feel that if you're going to do that, maybe you move through special school a bit quicker. Maybe we get to that war so I we know, know what the that's the about. That's my favourite bit. <laughs> See, I actually preferred the Suicide Squad. I much prefer... I was engaged. And I fucking hated the Suicide Squad. Jordi, I read... The first bit of this book, mm-hmm. I read it in like 30-page chunks. Oh, yeah. Got book club, let's read a bit, let's read a bit. The last third of this book, Geordie, I read in a single night. Mm. I started at 10pm. I put the book down at like 1.30am. This book had me in the end. And you know what? I do still think the decisions made at the very end and where the character goes. Well, I had me engaged. I was like, this is like dark. I do not necessarily agree with you, but I kind of see where you're coming from. I enjoyed those decisions. Yeah, I agree that it's a successful ending in terms of how it takes the character on their journey. Uh, there's no question of that. I feel that more strongly on this reread than I did in my previous one. Oh, and I should make something clear. Uh, my opinion on this book has improved. Um, I would have con- last if you'd asked me this last year before the reread, I would have said that um, this is maybe a two out of ten book. Like it's trash. Like it's awful. And now I just think it's a subpar book. I think it's just above par. We don't do scores, but I would still put this book in that kind of six to seven region. You know, it has the way the story's being told has some kinks to be ironed out, but I do like the story that's being told to me. Yeah, like I didn't like the Suicide Squad bit because uh, I didn't like the sudden onrush of here's all these new characters, learn all their names. Are they going to be important to the story? Absolutely not. Yeah, there was that scene in that. It, it felt actually very much like the opening to The Suicide Squad, where they have that bait-and-switch opening. Yeah. This is Katana. I recommend not getting cut by her sword. She's not going to be important in this movie. Here's the guy who's literally living water. I know that seems really out of place for the level of magic introduced so far, but barely anyone's going to comment on it. Let's keep going. Exactly. And also, the fact is, is that all these characters are just walking around, but for some reason people largely deny the existence of magic, even though these characters are just out there and anyone can just tell their families about them. Hey, you'll never guess, I saw a boar man today. Yeah, they're just part of the military by this war point. Like, they're not super secret. They're not even a no, secret. They're not a secret. Everyone knows they exist. They're the super hit squad. 
And it's like, there's no... They're like, oh yeah, we know it exists. And they think they're like a gang of assassins or whatever. But they're not hiding their powers. One of them is an ape man. He's just an ape. There's a lot of stuff in this book, Duncan, which just makes me go, oh, come on, what are you doing? So, like, an early choice R.F. Kuang makes is she decides that when she talks about the concept of chi, you know, this mystical energy which um, traditional Chinese medicine people talk about, she's not describing something mystical, she's describing something quite systematic and non-magical because she wants to draw a distinction between the military's very grounded atheist approach to things and the shaman's religious approach to things and then she has people do stuff that is just impossible using what is supposed to just be this normal chi well she's basically talking about momentum like she doesn't need to use the word chi she just means power and like it's weird that she even uses the word chi because she makes this really uh, good choice to not use, like, Chinese words for stuff because they're speaking their equivalent of Chinese or or maybe Mandarin. I'm not sure what language they'd be speaking of this period of history. But, you know, they don't call it a volcano. They call it a fire mountain because volcano wouldn't translate. So if you're just translating everything, you call it a fire mountain. So why call it chi? At all. But anyway, and then using Chi, you have an 11-year-old girl kick the solid head off a statue. And when another 11-year-old gets punched by her master and she blocks a punch, it splits the entire floor in two. But they're just supposed to be normal people at this point. They're not magical shamans. How do I phrase this correctly? Geordie, I agree with all the objective statements you've just made. But I disagree with all your conclusions. Boo. Your observations are right. Your conclusions are wrong. None of that bothered me. Cool. Whatever. It's, it's, it's just that flare. it didn't bother you. Like, yeah, it's a bit of flair. The, the floor split. Awesome. Looks like they're powerful. You don't think it's just very stupid? that it, And d- again, tonally dissonant. Oh, tonally dissonant like, as hell. There is two major flaws I had level at this book. It's tonal dissonance. You can't say she isn't mystical and then have it do mystical shit. Maybe it is a bit mystical then. Maybe they've tried to demystify it, which is one of the key things in the military which it addressed, is the idea that they've taken these like elaborate forms and tried to in terms of martial arts and tried to boil them down to the barest essentials to make oh them mass marketable. I, I had forgotten that. I fucking hate that bit. Because it's that's actual fucking Chinese propaganda. Like that's Chinese government Communist Party tro- propaganda right there. That's perpetuating this book. The idea that stripping down the mysticism of Chinese martial arts has made it less effective is actual fucking, like, uh, suppression of information. Like, ah, fuck, I I wish I'd prepared this a bit more so I could talk about it. I'll enter his name here. Zhu Xiaodong. He's a Chinese MMA fighter, and he's basically been an advocate against the use of Wing Chun and Kung Fu because they're ineffective martial arts, they, they don't work, and he promotes more effective, broken down, you know, just use the stuff that works martial arts like MMA. He's beaten up a ton of Chinese Kung Fu masters because his stuff actually works, and he's been punished for it by the government. He's had his social security, it's not his social security, his social credit ruined. He had his passport taken away, his life ruined because of this. And here it is, 
in a fucking New York Times bestseller book. Fuck that. Okay, I appreciate it. I did not know the history of that. And I think that is a very good point, which I do not like. And I think the point that they're making in the book is a return to the mysticism. But in a fantasy book, that is okay, I find. You know, as you say, you, from this fantasy perspective... Yes, yeah, yeah, it is. It, it, unfortunately, it does exist in a context, a real-life context, which has an impact on how you're going to read that. Yes, and that is unfortunate, because I do... The core idea in a fantasy book of saying the world's been over-industrialised, you need to get back to the roots of the mysticism, sort of a go-back-to-nature message, I don't actually agree super loads. You know, I, I think a lot of what industry has given us is very nice and I enjoy the life I have because of it. But in a fair fantasy escapism, on its own, this little bubble, I did like that idea. But you're right, now you've literally given that on me, I'm like, well, great, now I have to feel a bit icky mm. reading that and feeling that and going, what is your point as an author? What are you trying to kind of put across there? And there's something I want to say about the topic of industrialization, because it's a topic which is, like, bizarrely sidestepped in this story. So, there's this line in it by a Muganese soldier who says to the characters at some point, oh, your side is going to lose because you haven't kept up with the rest of the world. You're far behind the rest of the world technologically. This is obviously a comment on China at the start of the 20th century, because Guess what? That's what this book's about. It's not actually about, you know, medieval China where they're using bows and swords and stuff. It's about the Sino-Japanese War. It's the Second Sino-Japanese War. And the reason why Japan was so dominant in the Sino-Japanese War for so long is that they were more of an industrialized nation. They had used Western technologies, they had radically changed their society, they had more infrastructure, and whilst they did lose the war ultimately, they lost because they were fighting the, the, the Allied powers. Yeah, don't do that. That is a very bad decision to start fighting the Allied powers. Nine out of ten dentists would agree that fighting the Allied powers is a bad idea. But that doesn't actually manifest in the story. Like, the idea that Mugen is more, which is, by the way, like a naked, like, standing for Japan. That's not like a mystery, but if you haven't read the story, that might not make sense in, uh, in, if we don't say it out loud right now. But it's not like a secret, it's very obvious. Like, they don't have superior technology to Nikon at all. They just use the same technology and the only reason they're said to be more effective in battle is that they don't care about their own lives because they lack individuality. They move in, like, mechanical order. And there's this weird doilist versus Watsonian problem here. Because for most of a book, obviously the Nikata and Runin, our main character, they talk about the Muganese uh, as monsters and that's understandable because they see them do atrocities and they're deliberately dehumanizing them because they're at war but Kwong is also doing it and she's doing it in a doilist way because by saying that Mugen their people lack uh individuality and that they only serve their higher masters you do dehumanize them and you actually like take a negative stereotype about Japanese people that 
they are this collectivist group and which has been used to dehumanize them in the past and then you just put it in your book published in 2016 it's that balance of the voice of the characters and the voice of the author i have no problem with these characters giving these ideas because not only that their society has clearly been indoctrinating the characters and the characters are at war and they're seeing them the worst of this other nation so Mm. they're dehumanizing them as you can see in every world war ii movie sure absolutely for years and years and years in fact i would say it's only very recently we're really pushing against that and getting other perspectives so i get that but you're right i do think there's a line where it does cross over where the author at least in this first book really confirms all of those stereotypes when we interact with the other side at all mm. like i find that really difficult yeah you there's no the point room which, for like to see the other. obviously you as a reader are not supposed to agree with the characters but you're being put in a position in a sort of unfair position where you don't have the chance to to say, well, listen, I can see the humanity on both sides, despite the atrocities being going on. You're not given that chance. I guess that's got to be deliberate on the author's part. You just have to use your own understanding of humanity, that good people are out there doing atrocities, because that's what people do in war. And it's very hard, because I do believe at the end of this novel, our character commits an atrocity against the other side. And you have, and it puts you into that position where you go, oh my goodness, I almost feel so much for my character. But at the very end, the author finally writes about, you know, the innocence and the children back at home that have been impacted by their atrocity. And you go, oh no, I can't balance these two ideas. It's, you know, it's very too much. And I do think that is very intentionally the point. But I do think there's just a little bit too heavy handed on the lead up to it to dehumanize the other side. And when you do it in a fantasy novel, when Tolkien writes Lord of the Rings and he has his orcs and his goblins. It's a bit more complicated in that particular book, but keep going. Well, that's my point, though, because when you mm-hmm. do that, when you actually create them a fantasy race or species, make it a little bit more, you can kind of get away with it more. And I, I don't like it, particularly any readings where you put a particular race onto the orcs. They are, yeah, exactly. they are created as the other to be another. That's mm-hmm. the whole point of it is that they can just be the collective mass of monsters so he can have a collective mass of monsters but when you make it humans and you put it so close in the parallels and the allegory to a real life event mm-hmm. oh i don't think you can have the same way and i do believe the author is intending that but i think there's just that little bit the authorial hand in there uh not that it's this at all well, maybe it's a little bit of like you can write a. Well, actually, that's a good, great example. H.P. Lovecraft. There is a difference between writing a, a racist character and writing as a racist. Mm, sure. And he, he and he completely you know he crosses the line where a non you know racist author can write a racist character. Yeah. That's the thing here. It's like these characters have these bad views. But there's just a little bit too much, I felt, in the narration, in the actual depiction when we do see the other side, that just Mm. confirms it a little bit too positively until the last moment, where it suddenly goes, oh, look at you. How could you feel this emphasised with our characters so much? Didn't you think about the humans on the other side? I'm like, no, because you didn't depict any. Yeah, and it's, um, and the other baggage that carries with it is that, to be more explicit, and let's just do spoilers from here on out. Um, I think we've made our opinions on this book pretty clear at this point. 
actually make it more clear duncan should people read this book yeah actually i kind of do still think you should read it i think there's enough interest in here that you should go and form your own opinions on it okay um, I'm i don't think say it's terribly that... written I personally think that this book is a waste of time. Uh, I would be more forgiving of it if it weren't so long, but it's too long. But I also have to say that it has to come with a major caveat, which ha- which is to say, major, major trigger warning. Um, fuck, berserk. Like, this is easily the most heinous depiction of sexual violence we've read in anything so far. And I'll place a solemn bet. However long we do this podcast, we will never ever see a more heinous depiction of sexual violence in any book we read again yes and that's something that is not often brought up when this book gets recommended and no, put out there they just and people I, just don't it, fucking talk about it for some reason no one brings this up and i do think that's unfair uh, to readers because you pick this book up you pay you money for this bird, book you do not know what happens in the latter part you buy into this story and i think it comes at you far too hard and fast Mm -hmm. the other thing i would say is though again this is on my slight recommendation list again i don't know i haven't read the further books yet but unlike say when we read malice by john Gwynn, and i was like i don't know about this author he hasn't engaged me very well i if someone told me go and read babel like this author gets better and improves and puts out you know a more better round of work i would believe them this author at I. least does have a level of color and flavor to their writing that a lot of my issues come from pace tone a little bit how they write their character interactions i'm not going to lie but i still think there's enough flavor and color and interest that i would buy this author writing a really good oh yeah other story. I, I, I have to make it clear rf coin is so obviously a skilled author and i would like to read more of her stuff but i don't want to read any more poppy war I think that's fair. Let's get to the spoilers, Geordie. Yeah. So the end of a book is after all is done, uh, Runin uses her special magical powers to destroy all of Mugen. All of Japan is destroyed at the end. This is obviously a reference to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's about this massive wholesale destruction and how Runin justifies it. And... This is, I, I, I really, um, it irks me a lot. It irks me a lot for one specific reason, which is that once again, it's revisionist history. It's saying that the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were in some way necessary to end the war. And this is a serious pet peeve of mine because they weren't. That's a fucking lie. And I hate how movies perpetuate this. Even bloody Oppenheimer came out this year still perpetuate the idea that it was necessary to end the war, and it wasn't. Obviously, I can't speak from the position. I'm not a historian. I have not mm. studied this here particularly well. And lots There's of certainly... people are going to disagree with me, Duncan, so you're not you're not going to be uh, fighting a controversial fight if you did disagree with me. There's certainly an argument that there is the debate. There's many... Oh, my God, there's too much of a heady issue. This book really hit me in ways I did not think. There's also a debate of, like, well, you know, there's actual invasion you know how many of our fighters are we prepared to sacrifice which is also a really good question when you're talking about i, I actually want to cut you i want to cut there... you off there duncan because oh, yeah. right now you're kind of actually falling into this historical let's just say the original cut of this went on for uh, much longer but for the sake of all your sanities we've reduced it down to just under a minute which already ranting about the older conference this sort of an unknown fact of history but basically like japan's surrender was inevitable there was no question of it and all they were waiting for japan wanted russia to side with them and say 
don't invade Japan, we're going to allow Japan's dependence invasion. Half the cabinet said, we're going to wait for that eventuality. The other half said, that's not going to happen, and you're stupid for thinking it's going to happen. And they were stupid thinking it was going to happen, because Russia didn't fucking like Japan. Uh, they lost a really important war to them that they hadn't forgiven them, and the idea of relying on Stalin for help is so fucking comical. Anyway, Russia was going to, sorry, the Soviet Union was going to declare war on Japan and put commence with invading Manchuria. That was going to happen. We know that was going to happen. We have documentation for the time that it was going to happen. The ambassador to Russia from Japan said it was going to happen. They didn't listen, and they waited too long. And they dropped two bombs on the country to see how effective they were. Because that was the point of bombing those things. Anyway, I've had my rant. <sighs> I once, um, I had to take an ethics module at university. Now, I'm quite happy I got to do that. I'm quite happy that my uni made ethics a mandatory module for those wanting to become engineers. Uh, someone said once that, you know, we were all being trained to be, you know, geniuses, but we didn't think about what we were making. Probably a clever point. And one my my ethics teacher, he stood up in the lecture theatre and he said, you know, we talk a lot about the nuclear bombs and, you know, about, you know, deterrence and when to use them. I'd just like to remind the room quickly that the only recorded history of a nuclear weapon being deployed in war was from a nuclear power against a non-nuclear power mm-hmm. targeting their civilians. Yep. Thank you, Duncan. That was, that, I think uh, that was a meaningful contribution. So, fair enough. And I do also see your point, because one of the points that I've always wondered in history, I've, I've always sat there in my history class going, Japan's an island. Surely once you've blown up their navy, there's actually nothing that you can, they can do. Yep, you don't need but, to invade Japan. Like, it's not necessary. Just blow up the fleet and then just uh, sit. Just sit. And wait. They're done. It's over. Clean up the rest of their empire and liberate it. If you care to do such a thing. All right, listen, we got bogged down on that. And I complained about that, not actually because of the decision the character made, but because it it falsely depicts Hiroshima and Nagasaki as a method to end a war as opposed to demonstrating the effectiveness of nuclear weapons. And that's a major pet peeve of mine. Let's actually talk about what happens in the book and not what its real-life components are. Duncan, so far, we've very briefly covered the fact that, like, the first bit, where it takes place at a special school, happens. We've covered the middle bit, which is the Suicide Squad. We've dabbled with the rape of Nanjing. We've then hit the ending. We've had a bit of a scattershot approach to this novel. Then I think the best way to move forward is to zero back in on the main character, whose name we've thrown out there, but I don't think we've really even explained how this character gets from A to B to C to D. Mostly because I'm not 100% sure how they all actually happened. So let's zoom back in on Rin. Yeah, Rin. Runin. Runin. Are we calling her Rin? Uh, Yeah, most people do. That's the name used for the most of the book. So... Rin. Rin is like a completely serviceable character in this context. Um, she's a, me- a mechanism to explore the theme of the story, which is often what a main character is, that being like bringing this violent spirituality back to fantasy China and spearheading the events that will lead to the creation of the Chinese Communist Party. You know, we're speed running early 20th century Chinese history for what I guess really Runin's main purpose in the story is to be tormented by R.F. Kuang and she's certainly serviceable for that I mean she certainly doesn't hit the same level as torment as Robin Hobb has for their main character if you ever read The Assassin's Apprentice mm. Oh My Life but you're quite right A I'm lot sure of- you'll make me uh, it's on the card, don't you worry. But I do just feel 
that Rin gets a lot of bad stuff. And some of the bad stuff, I'm almost like, what does this lead into your story? There's one scene very particular early on that I want to discuss with you. So Rin is in a bad life. She's hemmed in. There's opium addicts. She's basically working for this abusive family. She's a war orphan. And mm-hmm. she wants out. And the way out is for studying very hard for this exam and doing really well yeah. and getting essentially a scholarship to the really good school. Okay, I like this. I get it. I like the idea of this character who's just like, life is against them. Society's society, the social mobility is low. Cool. I engage wow. with that. And that's how it opens. Geordie... I was a bit surprised. I thought that was going to be a theme for like throughout the book, though, the low social mobility. It's not really touched on again. Did you have the same fight? No, because at some point it just doesn't matter anymore. Like it really is just a sort of a plot device to get her to, I don't know, I guess she just needs to be an underdog to begin with. Because as you say, the social mobility thing just stops mattering when she's made to join the Suicide Squad. Like at that point... It becomes this like uh, racial line where she's not actually, uh, you know, she's not actually one of them. She's a spearly. She's this group part of this like thought to be wiped out race of islanders who were indoctrinated or enslaved into the empire before, and and they have this spiritual connection to this god, the phoenix, and it's the god of destruction and chaos. And I mean. I guess in uh, her her lower class beginnings are supposed to be her representation of being like part of a proletariat. The fact that she's going to be part of this like um this uprising. So Duncan, I I don't know whether you've encountered this um in did you do any research around this book and like some of the stuff RF Kuang has sort of said at, from her authorial perspective? No, I haven't, and I actually did that very deliberately. Because I know there's a lot of discourse and I really, really wanted to try having also just had, you know, your opinions and my sister's opinions and like the wider discourse. Like, no, I just want to be able to just read this book and take in this book as a standalone package. So no, but it was intentional. Well, I guess I've spoiled at a little bit now in talking about how this book is about the rise of communism in China. But Duncan, what do you think this book is about? I mean, genuinely, before you just said that, I would have told you this book was about um, the horrors of war and how the the common person sure, yeah. is always the one that loses, I would say, if I had to pick another thing. Yeah, yeah, but I guess that that's all true. Those are all thematically I, important It's a little bit about, like, about the book. wider culture. But, you know, oh, sorry, about, like, the loss of maybe, like, indigenous beliefs. But to be honest, I didn't feel that was too much of a theme. At least I didn't feel like there was a strong message. I really just felt the main messages were... War is bad and all sorts of people do bad things in war. And no matter what bad things happen, those at the bottom of the social pile get the worst of it, regardless of their role in anything. There, that would be my... Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty pretty well... Uh, I think that's pretty well reflected in like the, the, the way the book unfolds. More... From a historical point of view, and this book is about history, you know, it's the it's called the Poppy War because it's supposed to take place in like the aftermath of the Opium Wars, except it's a bit more complicated because Japan is involved instead of like the British Empire, but yada yada yada. But 
it's basically because this is the second Sino-Japanese war. This is about you know China's involvement in World War Two. That's the war you're seeing unfold in this. It then follows on that the next events that are going to happen, and with Rin declaring the Empress her enemy, it's about the rise of the uh, Chinese Communist Party. It's about this great upheaval in China that's going to lead to the foundation, it's, its modernization. And Rin is supposed to represent Mao Zedong. Who is... All right, Duncan, you may be showing a bit of his his lack of historic knowledge. All right, Duncan, so Mao Zedong is a very important world figure. He was the leader of the Chinese Communist Party from its foundation up through the... Oh, man, it's actually been a while since I've studied this. When did he die? Like, the 60s? But basically, he oversaw China's modernization. He's the guy who made China into a communist party. He won control of China itself and sort of unified it. And he also is the greatest mass murderer in all of history. Put, putting Stalin and Hitler in the dust. Not talked about as much. I'll be, I'll be honest, in uh, British English school history lessons compared to the latter two. I mean, I learned about him at AS level, so yeah, you're right. Um, you know, you have to get to a slightly loftier place. That's rude. You have to study him at, like, a higher grade level before we actually start talking about him. I will just put this out there, and this might be showing the fact that we went to school a few years apart, but my AS level was in, once again, Hitler and Mussolini, because they want to make it really rounded at that point. Um, where was I? Uh, yeah, Mao Zedong oversaw, like, the the Cultural Revolution. I'm sure you're familiar with that, right? Vaguely. I really need to emphasise this. No form of education on the matter. So... Uh, you're the three-body problem? Yes. I haven't read okay, it. Okay, it's, it's the start of the three-body problem. That thing at the beginning of the three-body problem. Okay. Great, we did it. Jordy, history summarised. Let's go. This is your new subsection. <laughs> Summarise. All right. So um, basically, I'm talking about two really important things. I'm talking about the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. The Great Leap Forward was the technological advancement of China, that being that it needs to be made into this industrious workforce. Part of that involves China's exploding population. Another part of that was that like a huge amount of food, or like, farming systems had to change and food had to be given like... More food had to be produced to be given to, you know, the cities and the army and stuff. And people, this is the big one and really confusing one. People had to take, like, their personal pots and pans and create their own smelters in their back communal gardens and smelt down basically all the iron in their house to make quotas to create pig iron, which could then be used for Chinese industry. And a result of this great leap forward is that over the course of five years millions of people died of starvation and almost all of the pig iron they made was crap and useless and made people needlessly suffer and starve uh because they weren't good at making iron because they were just farmers and yeah millions died and the cultural revolution was about the cultural purification of china getting rid of all these you know non-communist ideas and and having these people either uh, imprisoned or reprimanded or murdered in the streets for having the wrong idea. Okay. Okay, so the rise of a very, very bad state and the death of 
millions. I'm a little bit yeah. concerned that the protagonist in this novel is um, being put in that position. So that's the interesting thing, isn't it? The whole point of this book is you're supposed to watch essentially an innocent be turned into someone who can do atrocities. Like, isn't that the point? That war is going to make monsters of people. And here is one person who we start out the book being rigged to like. They're the underdog. You know, they're treated unfairly. We sympathize with, with her. Uh, we want her to be socially elevated. We want good things for her. And then we're going to watch her become a monster. I mean, that is what we... You know, she kills millions at the end of this book and she doesn't care. No. This is like... She's worse than basically any villain I think we've ever read about. Do you know most villains we read about don't end yeah. up killing anyone? Or very few, because they get stopped. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's only true to, because of their incompetence. You know, if you ha- we, if we go back to our, our former episode, our monster tier list, um, how does she stack up, you know, against Cthulhu and, and, um, and the God Hand and vampires? I mean, she stomps most of them. Even the God Hand, I do think, actually don't quite hit the body count, because she kills so many at the end of this book. It's absolutely unfathomable to me and it's really hard then to think that i'm going to be sat with this character through another book and return from to the perspective of i'm rooting for you because for me as a reader oh I'm, i mean i was conflicting that scene but i just i was like i was reconflicting that scene but eventually i was just like i can't see you the same way anymore i can't keep following you and rooting for you i can only see you as a villain and hope that mm. there will be a hero in this story to stop you eventually. And I'm okay having a story that's from an essentially a villainous point of view. Sure. But I don't know if that's the direction we're going. And I think it would be a little bit more engaging and a little bit more conflicting, though, if, with the character of Rin, those actual inter-character relationships were a bit more developed. Geordie, can I bring it back to the point I was trying to jump on earlier? Uh, you may. <laughs> Sorry, I talked yes. about the Cultural Revolution for a while. No worries. But this is a point which I want to bring up because, you're right, all these big ideas and talking about these big bits in history, whether or not you know about them or not, are in this book. And that could be a great gateway for someone. But one of the main failings, along with the tonal swings, going from the delightful school to the absolute horrors of war and all of humanity, is the fact that we have these intercalations which I feel struggle to really get off the ground for me. Like, who are the main characters that Rin interacts with and has a relationship with in this book? I guess there are really four. There's yep. Katai, her nerdy best friend. There's Nijar, her bully turned friend and ally slash potential future love interest. I mean, he's like, for sure not dead. It's so embarrassing to be like, oh no, Najar totally died off screen, you guys. Like, we just revealed some super important information about him, but he's totally dead, I promise. Come on. There's Master Yang, and then finally... Who's Master Yang? Is it not Master Yang? Yang? Master Zhong. Zhong. Not Jun. That's a different master. Master Zhong. Zhong uh... and Jun are different characters. I knew that. I just thought, I assumed it must have been like a Yang. It's I A. I don't know My how apologies. it's spelt in the book. I listened to the audiobook. Anyway, there's the Master of Law, her direct teacher, and there's finally, I believe it's pronounced Alton? Alshon? 
Alton. Alton. And I felt, Geordie, that this just almost wasn't enough. None of the other characters, there are quite a few characters that the main character interacts with, so I feel there was really enough of a build of actual relationship. There's this master at the school who throws her out of fighting training, Master mm-hmm. Jun. Jun. And, uh, alright, he doesn't like her because she's from the lowly working classes. But that's mm-hmm. it, I don't feel like there's really much of an interpersonal relationship there. She just kind of wants to prove herself, he's a bit of an antagonistic force at several points in the book, mm-hmm. but I didn't, like feel yeah, that he's they... a sort of stock character like a bit of a cigar chomping general type you know very grit and guts and then we get to the rest and it's felt very weird particularly with the breaks in the different sections of this book when we go from school to suicide squad like we're only talking about four characters here two of them drop off from the school section and don't really pop up like have singular scenes later on in the book the other two was i meant to feel that there was like a love triangle she didn't know how her feelings the bully character it, that is like a bizarre part of the book because yeah it is sort of framed as a romantic triangle because she likes alton romantically but there's never actually an impression that they could ever be together in any way and he never sees her in remotely any fat light so it's such a weird framing to have I mean, I guess what it comes down to is that, and I actually think this is quite good as a sort of character detail, that Rin is desperate for approval. You know, she spent her whole life being emotionally neglected, and she goes to this place where if she succeeds, she gets rewarded with, like, attention and affection. And that is sort of, like, her vice. That's what she craves. And I think that's actually a really, really solid choice to sort of explain how she can be led to do a lot of the things in this story. Because she can be very easily manipulated. But the fact that Alton is exclusively this um this romantic interest for her and like, you know, this character she has to look up to, um, it feels a teeny bit patronizing for her character that she has like a schoolgirl crush on her commanding officer, you know? It does. It does. And what I found a bit challenging is that at no point do I feel like they had a conversation. Even when there's like, there's revealing conversations where he, you know, we get a bit more of Alton's backstory or what he's gone through. I either felt that either Rin heard about some of the other things he's dealt with from other characters, giving her more insight and like appreciation of his character, or it just felt very plotty, you know. Alton's like, here's the mystery of my past. Here's the thing that I Mm. went through. It didn't feel emotional to me it didn't feel like no, here's the I, bit where we connect as humans and i don't feel i agree there was really that moment even with her nerdy like school friend there's this small bit in the first part of the book where she goes on like holiday with him back to his home and sees a little bit like mm-hmm. how the other half lived i'm like oh cool is this gonna be like a little slice of life thing and maybe it was but i just didn't get that emotional it, it engagement is, it is that I was looking for. And it's such a small bit of what is a very large book that it felt lacking. Rin is meant to be quite alone in this book, quite isolated outside from society. And I felt that. I felt that there was no real other characters that I was connecting to throughout a very long book. Even the Suicide Squad. I was like, listen, I sometimes forget your names. Sometimes you disappear for pages. I don't really know... 
I know about yeah, and I don't story, believe as is sort of stated at the end of a book that Rin has sort of found a group to belong to in this. Don't feel like family, do they? Because there's no no like, not real at all. in this. I I don't often like super promoting uh, this author work in this book series because I have very mixed feelings, particularly the author. Not a good person. Series a bit more mixed, and I'm going to split that out. But the Belgrade series, uh, Belgrade, yeah, the Belgariad, Belgariad. Thank you. Uh, just a great example of like a lot of the characters in there maybe don't have opposite, completely opposite to Poppy War. The fellowship that we're following. All right, they don't have the most interesting backstories. They don't have deep plots. It's not massive plot twists. But what they do have is a genuine sense of camaraderie. And there's banter. And you feel there are moments, like there are moments in the second part of this book where Rin is sat around the table with the Suicide Squad. That's what I thought calling them. And I was like, cool, they're at the dinner table. Let's have a bit of banter. Let's feel that camaraderie. Let's feel like a, an odd mix of family. Something that I feel at the end of the book, I'm being told they are. Jordi, I never mm-hmm. felt that. I never felt that emotional I think connection. That... No, I feel like there is an obvious attempt to, to achieve this. And I think it completely falls flat. I don't remember what a character's name is. I'm going to call him Pigsy because that's the character he's supposed to be. He's Pigsy from Journey to the West. He even has like a rake he fights with and he's like has a boar spirit. And he's like this jovial, boisterous character. And he's like, he's bantering with other people, but they're giving nothing back. It's like he is putting so much effort to be like, yeah, we're a plucky group of outcasts and we have a lot of attitude. And everyone else is like, yeah, that's right. We have so much attitude. The only one who comes close is this like explosives, precocious explosives expert kid. Um, And what I just said is either going to make you go, oh, hell yeah, that sounds awesome, or make you go, oh, no, that sounds so annoying. And unfortunately for me, I'm in the that sounds fucking annoying trope, and he's written the exact same way as, like, he's the exact middle point between Katai and Rin's little brother, and I guess he's exactly supposed to be that, and I found it really annoying how obvious that is, like, how obvious that attempt is in this. He certainly feels a bit out of place, and I don't think he has the right connection with Rin. Rin doesn't engage with him to put him in that place from her perspective. Do you ever feel that? It's this weird thing where I'm like, okay, I see where you're meant to be from the author, from the reader, where you're meant to sit in this story. I don't see where Rin is connecting to you. And maybe Rin is just a bit too quiet a protagonist for me. Maybe I was just like, yeah, I see all these characters, but I don't see Rin engaging with them there's a lot of introspective a lot of telling me what the events that are going on quite a bit of Rin's thoughts but Rin herself I just didn't feel like Rin was making the connections and it's kind of hard thing to put into words why that was the case I do think it was just in how the conversations were written I just felt they were either too expeditiony or too plot or too one-sided sometimes yeah yeah I don't know I think at a certain point I just I don't. Uh, I think a lot. A lot of reviews I've read of this is some people say find Rin annoying and whiny, and I definitely never got to that point. Um, I do think that there are a lot of times where I wish she was a bit more novel in like what she did. Like this is a section of the book where like she's demonstrated that she has this amazing power, but oh no, she can't access or control that power. And I just when I read, it, I'm just like I've seen this 
so many times. And and because this book has won me no favors up to this point, I'm just so tired of the, oh no, I can't access my powers because I haven't gone to the right frame of mind. And then at the end of the book, I am getting to the right frame of mind. And then I'm going to be able to use my powers. And like, come on, it's so, so, so tired. I think it's a combination of none of these decisions that I think are bad enough themselves. It's that sometimes I don't feel like these are decisions. I'm not sure like the author set out for us not to feel these connections or to feel this way about Rin. It's just sort of come about in the writing. One thing you mentioned about Rin, like the tropes of Rin, like, oh, I can't connect to the powers. I'm like, if I was enjoying other elements more, I could let this go. I get the fact that Rin is emotionally tormented and she's having a lot of very bad mental health days. She, you know, she's crying out for approval. She is seeing the horrors of war. She's being indoctrinated. She is getting confused. She's having the conflicting of feelings. I'm like, I just needed a little bit more of Rin normal or Rin acting a bit more day to day. It's it's really hard because I don't want to be like, oh, this character's too traumatized or is too out there for me to relate to. But at the same time, that's almost how I felt. I couldn't really see the the human being behind Rin sometimes. I could see the warrior. I could see the protégé. I could see the traumatised individual. But it was really hard just to see the person that I could try and relate to or want to be with or want good things to happen to at a point where it's just like, this is just too much. This is too much misery. This is too much trauma that I got kind of disconnected I, I think that my experience of reading this book was when we got to the bit in like the strategy game where running in a class where, she, where Rin says to win this battle, I would flood the whole valley. And everyone else points out like that would, you know, do all these terrible things to the crops and that would ruin the countryside and the people would rise up and revolt from being treated so badly. And that's when I realized that what this book is about, it's about engineering Rin to be a character who can do an atrocity and for you, the reader, to be like, I guess I'm kind of okay with this. Like, that's the point. You're supposed to follow someone to the point where they can do something putrefyingly evil. And when I saw that was coming the first time I read this book, I guess part of me just sort of checked out. Because I knew that, like, okay, listen, I see what you're doing. And because I see what you're doing, I'm not going to let you emotionally lead me on. And from that point on, every time the book did something to try and provoke this reaction, I just felt like it was manipulative. And speaking of the book being emotionally manipulative, we have to talk about Nanjing. Or in this book, it's called, uh, what is it called, Golem Ness? Yeah, let's go with that. I knew it was Nanjin. I was it'd be Nanjin in my head. So, yes, Golemess. So, at a certain point of the story, Rin and the Suicide Squad, and I really want you to imagine, as I tell this story, to imagine Will Smith and Margot Robbie walking into the city. Because, bear in mind, that's the tone we're going for right now. Suicide Squad. Rookie group of ne'er-do-wells and misfits all banded together in a ragtag crew walking into one of the greatest atrocities of the second world war so god almighty i've been dreading this conversation duncan for actual months because you wrote down that you wanted to do this book at some point that was just one of the first books we wrote down on our 
books, list of books we want to do. And I knew this was coming. So I've had over a year to try and formulate my thoughts on it. And I still haven't succeeded. If I've been rambling up to this point, I feel like it's been this internal sense to not have this conversation. Geordie, let me tell you how I thought this was going to happen based on the existing tone of the book. Have you ever seen Disney's Mulan, the animated version? We don't talk about the other version. Yes, Duncan, I have seen Disney's Mulan. There's a scene in that where the invading Huns attack a village and they kill everyone. And then our hero and their plucky team show up. Except we don't see the attack. In fact, we see very little. Our plucky team show up straight out of a joyous song. And we see the burnt down buildings. And then they're like, where where are the people who meant to defend it? And the camera zooms over and you see just this field of like dead soldiers. And that's it. Someone walks up from the field holding a helmet of a guy we knew. And we're like, ah, he's dead. Sad. That is it. That is the level of graphicness but yet still gets poignancy that that film needed okay that's a kids film i get that but still that's a kids film young adult that's a kids film this is not a kids kids book book. get that this is not a ya book either this is a book for adults could have missolved this to me i will be honest nonetheless that's so and i'm thinking okay cool this is happening now i get it i know this from history this is something they do teach everyone because it's something that needs to be taught moving into this scene Okay, dead streets, dead bodies. Okay, oh my god. See that now, it's quiet, it's eerie. Oh, this is impactful. And then they're like, okay, so there's some dead bodies. Oh, but there's dead bodies of kids. Oh, we're getting more graphic descriptions. Okay, they beheaded people. Okay, they quartered people up. Okay, they tried to burn the people. Okay, dogs are eating on the people. And then it just keeps going and keeps going until we get to a scene in the end where we find a survivor. And they talk about a very visceral assault, sexual assault they had gone under. And then there's a description, Geordie, that genuinely, I actually, if all for intent, made me feel sick in my stomach. Yeah, which is the intent. Of someone being, oh God, I don't even want to... I really don't think you should get into no, the No, I don't, I don't, I, don't, don't I can't do it. Words. Um, but someone is killed in a very horrific way, eh, and we just it's described to us... And the thing is, right, this is a very real event, and it's, and it's awful, and I'm glad it's taught in history classes, because people need to know about it. I am reading a piece of media that had not adequately set me I up. I clarify that this was never taught to me in any history class. Interesting. This is how I discovered this happened. In which, and so to its credit, good job. Like, if you want to raise awareness of this atrocity happening, this book has succeeded in that, because I didn't know this existed, and I know a lot about history. What a wonderful flex. I know a lot about history. <laughs> I know all about different atrocities, and this was a new one. But I personally felt, I don't want to underneath from the author, I don't think this book had the right lead-up to talk about this atrocity in the way it then wants to talk about it. Because in some respects, it doesn't talk about it. It shows it and goes, look at this atrocity. And I was like, I wasn't... um. <laughs> I wasn't prepped for this. I think you've almost, in some way, done a bit of a bait and switch on me. And I don't think that's fair to your reader. Because there's nothing to tell you this is coming. There is no content warning Mm -hmm. on the packaging or even in text. Because books can do that. Stories can do that. It's like if you're reading something, I can't think of a great example of that, to be honest. But what a story can do is 
you let the reader know early on the type of content that will be in the book. You will sh- you will depict yeah. a scene. You can use the narrative. You can use the narrative to say, my memories of that day will never leave me. If they if it's even like a first person like story, someone looking back, like say the Black Tongue Thief, you can even couch stuff that's going to happen to make it easier. Like the Black Tongue Thief depicted a uh, like a, a scene of sexual violence in like a really clever and yet dis- and and softening and yet disturbing way. And that was like when I read back and I was like, whoa, that was like like a fucking Jedi move. I can't believe you managed to juggle that so well. And this not, not so, so much. much. It just is suddenly and this is bam. It and this is the problem is the fact it is part of the packaging because I want this needs to be recorded. This needs to be written down. And if I picked up a textbook. That was like the history of this event. Absolutely. You slap that in that book. You put it on the page. Because the reader knows. They have brought into this knowing their expectations. The level of jovialness or fun or like school, special school, suicide squad japes up to this point does not give adequate feed into this event. And that's what I find makes it a little bit disconcerting and i really don't want to go after the author for putting this in there or depicting this or talking about this subject matter because i think it's a great thing to so enthusiastic sorry yeah it, and it's it, yeah, it's more it's emotionally complicated about it because i don't like its depiction in the book but i also don't think we have a right to say don't talk about it shouldn't be in no. the book and don't talk about it that would be wrong and the fact is that there are people out there in the world specifically there are officials in japan who want to deny that this event happened or say that its events are exaggerated those are people who exist and i think that is absolutely in the author's head when she wrote this she's writing about something which people want you to think didn't happen that's important that you do talk about it but if you actually want to get the message out there the fact of the matter is I don't think this is actually a very effective way of talking about it because as much as I was emotionally disturbed by the book, I was way, way more emotionally disturbed reading the Wikipedia article about it whilst preparing for this episode, you know? And I bet I'd have a much more, um, a much bigger and more profound reaction if I decided to, say, read a history book about the event or about the Second Sino-Japanese War. So, Because what I experienced the first time I read this book was I got really mad at R.F. Kuang. I felt really hurt and betrayed and tricked. I felt like I had been brought into something which I didn't sign up for. And that's not fair on your reader. We... Given our life experiences, I, you know, I won't talk for you, Geordie. I, I, given my life experiences, tackled it, you know, well. Didn't I don't have anything, any built trauma relating to this or anything that's depicted. I just went, oh, God, this is a really horrific bit of fantasy. Oh, my God. Okay, it's relating back to that real life thing. I know about that. Okay. But I need to ask the author, what is the intent here? If the intent's to let to get the word out, like... Or is it to shock me? Because do you want to use this as shock to drive your narrative? Or do you want to do this to bring people to the event? And I really... Because if you want to bring people to the event, you should write a novel about Nanjing. Like, write something like The Silence of the Girls for Nanjing. And frame it about that. Like, this event deserves its own book. I know it's a footnote in history and everything leads into each other, but 
I felt having this is just part of this and using this event simply I don't want to say simply but as part of the character development of Rin towards her actions later on I don't know I felt like that's taking a, a too much of history to serve your novel's plot and I, I it just sat a little bit it made me feel uncomfortable and I can see maybe where it's come from I'm sure it does come from a yeah, good place about yeah. trying to get the word out about this event because a lot of people don't know but I don't think it worked for the story that I've been told thus far in the Poppy War. <sighs> like I said, Duncan, I spent a year trying to think about what I would say in this moment, and I never was able to come up with a properly articulate way. And I don't think I will ever be able to properly bring my emotions up to up to board with it, because I used to wonder to myself um, whether it was even like disrespectful to the people of Nanjing. But now I, I don't think that's more. I think that's really unfair. And um, and I, I'm never going to come to a, um, a, a an emotionally coherent or verbally coherent opinion the thing... on this scene or on this book even. I'm always going to have this very almost juvenile reaction, which is that basically I wasn't tough enough for this book. There are going to be people out there who can take this book in their stride, who aren't going to be as upset and disturbed by it as I was. But I was upset and I was disturbed by it. And that made me like the book a lot less. There's a scene much earlier in the book. I've never seen anybody talk about this scene. I've read lots of reviews for this book, trying to see what other people think about this, because I really want to see what other people see in this book. And I've never seen anybody mention this scene. But it's such a fucking bizarre scene. At the age of, like, what, 12 years old, Rin experiences her period. Oh, my God. Time. Thank you for bringing this up, Geordie. I wanted to get round to this. This is where I was going with, like, Rin as a character. Geordie, thank you. Yeah. Give voice to this. Um, and thank you for moving the conversation on. So, Rin experiences her period for the first time, and it's a very nasty, painful period. Now, Duncan and I, we've not had periods. We cannot say about... Uh, they sound really bad. I'm going to say... I've had a lot of girlfriends, and every time it happens, I'm like, oh, man, I'm so glad this doesn't happen to me, because this sounds fucking awful. My partner has often said to me that if I ever had a period, um, I would take the day off sick. She's like, there's no way in hell yeah. you could you would go to work, Duncan. I know you. And, 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 and that's almost certainly true. I, I There's a good chance that I would also take the day off sick. But I would also probably have been 12 or 13 years old the first time I had my period. And then, as time went on, um, I would, like almost every single woman in the world, and certainly all the women I know, eventually, I would cowgirl up, and I would put on a very pained face, and I would get on with my day. Because that's, that's, that's what so many women I... just have to do with really painful periods. In this book, after having her first period, Rin finds out there's a medical procedure in her world where she can demolish her womb and never experience it again and she's so desperate to not miss classes because of her painful periods that she does this life-changing procedure and what is the coding of this moment duncan what does this moment tell you about rin as a character okay there's several things i need to i want to address now because i do slightly disagree with the statement like yes i kind of said like it can be traumatic for a lot of people to have their period and I don't want to say that anyone should you know I think it's very bad that society doesn't have more to offer and some people you know you say you know you know 
it is hard and I do think it's unfair. Probably more should be done. People should be able to have more leniency. No, because so, there's nothing you can do about it. It's a biological thing that just happens. I appreciate that, but there are also biological things that happen that, you know, we can work better to make it easier. Let's focus in terms of the plot, though. Because that's what I discussed. Because Rin immediately has this procedure to get rid of it. And I was sat there thinking, okay, why have you chosen to have this choice? I do think it's good to have a when you have a young female character to draw attention to this and address it in your world. You know? Do yeah, female characters in all of fantasy that a lot of it we read and this is never really addressed? Particularly when they're in like medieval settings. Unlike- sure. So, for example, Duncan, we haven't read this book together yet, but I'll give you an example. Sarah J. Mass's book, The Thro- Th- Throne of Glass, there's a scene in it where the main assassin character, like, can't do her assassin training because she has a very painful period. And, like, that's a scene in a book. It's like a couple of chapters. And it's like, there are scenes of dialogue that that baiting around it. And then it talks about, like, gender stuff going into that scene. Because this is an unfair disadvantage which she has to deal with, which her male competitors don't. It acknowledges this feminine thing that happens. It says it's happening. It pays attention to how this is going to affect the character. And then she doesn't carve out her uterus. No. So that's the thing. This character's in the decision. And the thing is, I think the focus on this scene is less about talking about periods and what like uh, people go through who have periods. It's more about using this as a way to demonstrate Rin as a character, being more interested in the now, in the military, in the training, in the fighting, in her own career, than she's interested in other things associated with having a womb, having a baby, having a... Uh, you know, a creative or a motherly or caring side. It, I think it's trying to demonstrate that point and those associations. It's meant to go, this is what Rin prioritises. And given the opportunity, this is what she's decided now. I'm going to say a slightly less charitable reading of this scene. And I'm going to say that the destruction of the room is supposed to represent, in a sort of Freudian sense, the destruction of motherhood and her caring side. It's supposed to show that she is so ruthless and focused and determined that there is no space left in her heart for softness. I think that's a very... I think it is a valid reading to have. But I also think it draws more attention to this character of... This character, for when I read it, I was like, Rin has been indoctrinated so far to prioritise these things and not care about these other facets of life and society that she's prepared at this point just to make this decision. And I also feel in the moment, no one really supports her. There is a scene, I believe it's a, even a male doctor who goes to her, like, who says, I wonder why not more people don't go for this procedure. Yeah, she says, I think it should be mandatory. It's, it's, it's supposed to be over the top, like, you know, masculine doctor performing a a fucking hysterectomy for no good reason exactly so i see where it's driving at it's the same point that's put forward in the strategy class she said with the example of the battle rin is someone willing to make sacrifices uh sort of the more what's the quite word the caring the it's not about her making sacrifices though it's about her being hard-hearted like duncan she doesn't see it as a sacrifice you have to say that like there are there's obvious symbolism happening in the fact that it's the womb being destroyed, right? The yonic symbol. Like if this were a male character being castrated, or you know, or being being gelded, we would draw such obvious, immediate, you know, Freudian symbolism from that. 
I don't understand why you'd ever resist the idea that the exact same thing is happening in this scene. I think I'm just making it a bit lighter. I'm just going, it's it's the priority of someone, you know, it's the destroy over the create. Um, it's the militaristic yeah, I mean, that's what I'm talking about, isn't it? Like, it isn't is, the mother know. the creator figure and then the masculine is traditionally the destroyer figure? She's being made, in the language of a book, more masculine. But she's doing it in a way which is, like, really gross and not nice to women who don't have functioning uteruses. Like, remember when, like, Age of Ultron came out and, like, Natasha Romanov was designed to be a killing machine because her womb was removed? And, like, people were like, well, that's kind of fucked up, isn't it? The idea that just because you can't become a mother, that removes a part of your humanity or your ability to be compassionate and caring? Well, yes. What it, Yes, that is right. But the difference here, though, is it's showing Rin making the decision which it's showing that's the point it's not what's happening to her it's the decision she's making if the scene was her accidentally in a a terrible accident in fighting class having her womb destroyed i don't know how that would happen but whatever if it was duncan you know you know you're not actually arguing with my point now don't you no i think i do agree with you she of course she has to choose to do it because it's i mean i guess we're arguing it from the same point but i'm making a more broad point that it is a statement based around like i mean i don't i don't i'm not well, whatever like we're arguing the same thing but you're just not saying that it has like this gendered connotation to it potentially not maybe i am removing that maybe that's unfair and wrong of me actually because that point isn't put onto the men in the society who don't have to make that decision and it's also i think what i'm trying to point it's less the fact that it's the removal of the room that the key point here it's her decision that that's what she prioritizes and that will gives us the insight to rin but yes there's the wider metaphor which you've just said and i do agree with you on that but i would put more focus on rin's decision rather than what's actually going on i'm also going to point out that i think it's very funny that you know part of the reason why this happens is so that she and alton can't make more spearly they can't just have kids and make more spearly who could then be also connected to the phoenix um but the thing is, is that, like, Alton wasn't gelded. Like, he still has functioning sexual organs. So, like, he does the big heroic sacrifice at the end, and in doing so, dooms their race. <laughs> when he could have just made more Spearly, you know? He could have, ha- he could have, you know, had kids. So it does so suggest that something of Spearly has to be this, like, only with other Spearly and... That's a, a bit of an uncomfortable kind of look on their culture. But I think yeah, the other that point... Would be actual that makes eugenics. This, That's weird. The other point that makes this a bit weird is that it, while it has that... It's brought up briefly later on in that context. Not that Rin and Alton are anywhere near that in their relationship. It, it's not really brought up again. When this happened, I generally thought, okay, are we going to have a scene... Where's this going? What, what does this add to the plot? I get what it adds to the character, but I didn't really see how much it would add to the plot. And it doesn't add to the plot. I'm not saying I say it has to. No. But I, I think I would have enjoyed it if it did. I think I want to briefly touch on the weirdness of the Spearly in this book. Because we talked before about some of the weird coding that happens with the Muganese. Um, the Spearly is so much worse. Because, again, you get this weird, doyalist, uh, Watsonian agreement. Where... Throughout the first 90% of his book, 
characters are saying, oh, the Spearly were savages. They were barbarians. They were like wild dogs. And you go, oh, yeah, this is just racism, right? These characters are talking about these browner people and they're dehumanizing them. All right, there's nothing weird about that. I, I understand why this is happening. And then you get like all this new spiritual knowledge about the Phoenix, their patron god, the god of chaos and destruction. And then you go, wait, so they were right. All of the racists were actually right. And you have this group of people who are deontologically, genetically predisposed towards fire and destruction. What the hell is this book about? It's one of those things where I'm like, is this your authorial intent or have you just botched the execution? And that's something that I think I asked multiple times. It has to be just so botched, right? Like, this is how you write about a Mel Nibinean, not a human being. I think that always makes it the problem, isn't it? That it's all... If this was more detached, maybe I'd be a little bit more, like, willing. Or... Yeah. Because all the metaphor, every other metaphor in the book is, like, surface level. This country is Japan. This country represents the British Empire and America. This country is China. This particular person is Mao Zedong. This person represents previous power hierarchies. But you're right, it... There's even, like, a Buddha standard. It's that... Yeah. And, and a, 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 um, fucking... Who's he called? Um, the Art of War, a... Sun Tzu? Sun Tzu, yeah. There's a Sun Tzu stand-in. Like, all these characters have one-to-one stand-ins, and then you just have this nebulous other group who is like, listen, it's brown people, and I'm gonna say weird stuff about how they're all the same, and not in a good way. Yes, so we have this stand-in for a marginalised group based on their race. And you're right, the Southern, it's all the characterization is very negative, they're all clearly being racist, and you are waiting for that curtain to be pulled back and go, ha ha, they were all racist, look, they had a beautiful culture, it was just different, and they were demonising the different. But what we then learn about that culture does sort of reinforce a lot of those stereotypes that the original characters were saying. One of the main things that tries to kind of mediate this is the idea of, oh no, they weren't really like that. It was the fact that when the Empire took over, they used you know like opium and it was like they were funneling a drug in there to keep them that way they wanted to use them like that and i'm like okay i see that and i see where you might be going so you're talking about the war on drugs now right so now you're saying that oh this group is is bad and crazy but only because all of them are drug addicts and then you go wait 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 so are you really doubling down on stereotypes around black people because that's kind of what it sounds like I don't think that was the authorial intent from my reading. I don't give a fuck what the intent is, because that's really what it sounds like. I see that, and I definitely see how you can take that reading, Geordie. I do think that and it's laid in there where you're like, okay, this probably was meant to go a different way. It hasn't. And also, because it's really hard to put to fit this group into the wider story, not that I've done a lot of research, into the wider story of China and all the other history that's going on. What is this subgroup meant to be in the greater context of the historical context? Because in universe, it does, you're right, sound like here's a group of, uh, here's a race of people who have a darker skin. I'm going to just pile on every stereotype I can and not debunk it. I don't know. I really don't. It's. It doesn't, it genuinely doesn't like make actual like geographical sense because there's no like island in swimming distance off the coast 
of Southeast China where you can just go there. Because you could say, is it like Papua New Guinea? Is it Indonesia? Is that what you're talking about? But you can't swim to I'm going to let that one side, although I'm not going to lie, I did find that quite funny when the character does swim. Because I'm like, is this meant to be like a like a narrow strait? Like, how close is this to be swimmable for Rin, who I would bear your mind at this point? And how could there be such a massive appearance and biological difference in between it if it's a Jordi. swimmable distance that's the distance between england and france and french people don't look Jordi, different can i ask us. you a big question here when does rin learn to swim were there swimming lessons in sengard did they have a pool yes there were swimming did lessons it? that happened oh, sod, okay damn it yes there was an actual there was an actual scene where they say all right had swimming fine lessons. And Rin didn't learn to swim, and then Jun made her learn to swim. So <sighs> you're wrong about that. Fast making a good point there. Well, I still thought it was a shocker that she hadn't been practicing very much, and she was a very good swimmer. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But I just thought, ah, she's got the power. Got the power. So... I think it's... All right, listen, this episode's quite long. I think it's really weird we didn't talk about Najar at all. How do you feel about Najar? I don't care. There was enough of character connection. I thought it was quite good. I... Yeah, I like the fact that, like, he just wants to pretend he wasn't her bully and then kind of gets chastised for that. I think that's pretty good. I think it's so fucking hysterical that the author thinks we think he's dead. I mean, if he is dead, I wouldn't even call that bold. I'd actually call that stupid. Well, wasted amount of character development and time. So, yeah, he's not dead. I guess we'll find out. Never. I'm never going to read the next book. Uh, I really thought maybe, and my opinion on this book did improve a lot. But I think you can tell from this episode, I have so many problems with this book. They're not small and problems either. Of Kong is a skilled writer and like just a lot of scenes in this play out in quite a smooth, easy to digest way. Uh, the first time I read this book, it was like pulling teeth. The second time I read it through, I had almost no like emotion reaction to anything that happened except feelings of disgust and feelings of disgust are the easiest thing to evoke in a reader because all you have to do is show something disgusting. And that's it. Great job. You win. That's not a demonstration of any great skill. I'm never, ever going to read the next book unless, Duncan, you tell me right now that you're going to spend one of your destiny points to make me do it. This is a reminder for those who have who may be jumping in for the first time. Duncan and I have a little resource, which I at some point decided would be called destiny points, even though we never actually agreed on that. And basically, if for one reason or another, one of us causes an episode to be delayed... Um, the other person is rewarded, or I suppose the person who made the infraction is punished by giving the other person a point, a destiny point. I have spent this twice in the podcast so far to make Duncan read, what did I make you read? I made you read Children of Virtue and Vengeance. What else did I make you read? I can't remember in the slightest. Have I made you do it more than once? I, think you really have. Sure I, I can't have. remember another sequel that we've done. Was it The Subtle Knife? Would you have made me read The Subtle Knife? Maybe you did. Well, that was a misspent there. Would have read The Subtle Knife anyway. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I had two and I spent both. Um, and you have two and you've spent zero. So are you going to make me read whatever the next one's called? Is it called The Dragon's Republic or called The Burning God? I'm pretty sure it's called The Burning God. The Dragon's Republic. No. Wait, what is the next book called? I'm going to say Dragon's Republic. I'm sure that is probably true. And if it's not, you will find out right now. Okay, sounded like it was true. Great. Now, Duncan, are you going to make me read it? 
No. Okay. I'm not. I don't... Listen, Jordy, you've had such an emotional response to this. I don't think it would be fair of me to make you read this book. I think it's clearly... It's clearly a lot, and there's a lot going on here. And I am interested in reading more from Rebecca Quarton. But I don't know if I want to read more Poppy War. In fact, I'd much more be much more interested in reading something like Babel that I have on my shelf or one of her other future books because I do think she shows real talent as an author. She's really a good author, but mm. I'm not sure. This just isn't the story that I want to continue with. So, no. I just can't even to. imagine what could be in those books. Like, this book is so long because it's like one part big school adventure and then the war with Mugen. What the hell could... There are two more books. That's insane. Anyway. I might read it myself one day off the pod, but not now. And if you read it and you're like, oh, actually, I have a lot to say about this and I think Jordy needs me to read it, then by all means, spend one of those points. However, speaking of points, you almost got away with this, Duncan. Uh, I genuinely forgot until we brought this up. But the last episode of our podcast was delayed. And it was by your hand, wasn't it, Duncan? Yes, yes, it was. I forgot to send Geordie some audio files before taking my lovely holiday. So that's why you got to enjoy The Worm and His Kings on Halloween night and not the preceding Sunday. Sorry, everyone. A heinous, heinous infraction. And for that, he must be punished. Duncan, I now wait my destiny point. Destiny token, whatever the fuck it's called. Okay, Geordie, enough about our format points. I think people want to know... Actually, have I given my final thoughts on Poppy War? Must I've kind of did in the beginning. Yeah. I Big content warning there. Not enough people give you. But yeah, if you're curious, give it a go. But there is a lot going on here. And it does not get properly content warned in this book. But Geordie, this was, I think, quite an intense and heavy episode. And if you move into November, if you move into autumn... You know, the end of autumn, coming towards winter. I feel like I need something a little cosier. Just a little bit more relaxed. Something that we can just kind of snuggle down with. Like a nice hot chocolate or latte. Because, Geordie, I think we need to read something a bit easier this week. So I am going to pick a heartwarming, cosy fantasy. It's not your turn to pick. What are you doing? <laughs> what? Well, is it not my turn to pick? No, it's my turn to pick. Did I pick Poppy War? Yes! Why did I traumatise us? <laughs> Damn it! That's so fucking funny. Okay, um... I'm, I'm gonna What's keep that in, because that's very funny. Um, do you want me to <laughs> censor the book you're picking, or are you happy for the public at large to know? Nah, yeah, censor it. I think that's fun. I'm keeping the clue. Genuinely, Jordy, genuinely, because I had it written, I wrote it, because I only decided today, so I wrote it down and literally convinced myself it was my pick. <laughs> oh shit okay <laughs> sorry Geordie uh, so Geordie um, what book are we reading enough about our format points what are we reading next week he's, it's great that he can pretend that I'm not keeping all of that in alright we're going to be reading a book called Sisters of Sword and Shadow by Laura Bates Laura Bates famous feminist writer the writer of everyday sexism and men who hate women uh, really excellent writer I've been a big fan of hers ever since, long before she was an author, because she was my English tutor when I was 10 years old. And so my family and I have been big fans of her as soon as she became a writer. And I, I, and 
Apparently, I didn't know this, but she has written fiction before. I thought this was her fiction debut. Wrong about that. But it is her fantasy debut. It is an extremely formulaic uh, title. So much so that I think we're going to go back to our children of virtue and vengeance jokes. But I am very interested in seeing her take on a sort of, you know... Apparently Arthurian setting, because we haven't actually had an Arthurian setting yet in our in our um in our podcast, and an explicitly feminist novel. And I like her writing, so I'm really interested to see how this goes. And I'm incredibly excited too for this classic Arthurian legend. I don't know really about this book. I'm looking forward to it though. Hopefully the story is less by the numbers as the title is. Wow, that was quite an intense one, Geordie, and I think particularly for us and probably for a lot of people listening along and for those that have read Poppy War please do let us know what you think do you think we just got the wrong end of the stick with this have we been too harsh too nice have we just trumpled over a masterpiece tell us your thoughts the best place to reach out to us is on Instagram at it's just fantasy podcast and obviously you can always reach out to us at a gmail it's just fantasy podcast at gmail.com love to hear from you all you know, and you should be glad that you have the chance to reach out to us, Duncan, because I was at a Halloween party recently. Oh, and by the way, for those who were on a previous episode and didn't like the idea of me dressing as Ken for Halloween, I ended up not dressing as Ken for Halloween. My girlfriend and I went as Wesley and Buttercup from The Princess Bride. So we stayed on Fantasy Brand and uh, a good time was had by all. But at that Halloween party, I met a tech bro. And he tried to, when he found out that I was a podcaster, he tried to sell me uh, his piece of software. Um, Duncan, this piece of software is designed that if people want to message us, um, it, it blocks them and says that they have to pay us money in order to, to contact us. Doesn't that sound like a great investment idea? What? No. No, that sounds like a fucking terrible idea! <laughs> You would, you would just make it so that no one can contact me. And so I have no idea that my fans or the listeners of my podcast want to talk to me or, or tell me how they feel about it because I'm trying to demand money from them. How much would you charge? I, I don't know. What I don't know. ego I mean, trip that would be. I know. I mean, and also it's just OnlyFans, right? That's what OnlyFans is. Yeah, that's actually what that is. It's imagine, imagine if... Back in the olden days, you wrote a fan letter to a favourite star and then you got a letter back from their, like, secretary going, hi, if you want me to pass this on and you might get a reply, because that's not guaranteed, just that no. they'll read it, please put a check in the post. You also said this is for, like, low to medium level producers, but that can't be true, right? This is, has to be for, like, the absolute high rollers, people who, like whose time and attention is worth a lot. Like, oof. I mean, when you consider that even, like, really quite big people aren't that expensive on Cameo these days. That's true. You can just get Lin-Manuel Miranda to, like, read you something, you know? I, well, I, I mean, I can see why you would think of that idea, but I would never want to do that. Let's keep it free, people. I can send an email to the McElroy brothers this afternoon. And they're not going to demand money from me. It's on the receipt, not the reply. Anyway. <laughs> I've been your host, Geordie Bailey, <laughs> circumventing bad business business decisions since 2023. And I've been your host, Duncan Nichol. Till next time. So long, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>